と。We're still trapped here. We are still trapped.、Um, and production of these episodes has been quite slow. and... But we're, we're trying. We're trying. We're getting this one out. And this one is act- this film in particular is actually a very fun one to review. So we're really excited for this. Yeah, I don't feel the need to apologize for our low productivity because sue us. I mean, I'm sorry that when the apocalypse came knocking on our doors, we weren't prepared to transition <laughs> into this really uncertain time and keep up our episode output. Like, what? what? This podcast that we're doing for absolutely no money and、uh, are doing it on our own free will. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a labor of love and. Right now, during quarantine times, when we both have own res- our own responsibilities in our personal lives and a lot of things to keep track of, like, I, I don't know what to say. If, if more episodes come, they will come. <laughs> Otherwise, the, the show will always be here. Like, I can guarantee you that、uh, COVID 19、yeah. will not kill、Maybe. Egg a Night. Unless it kills the both of us, then. I mean, if it, kills the, if it kills one of us, at the very least, we can replace each other, even though I don't want to. But... <laughs> And on that very morbid note, let's get into the film, <laughs> shall we? On a distant island, these two clans split into the Reds and the Whites wage war. Their story goes a little something like this. Premise all too familiar to the Western genre, a lone and nameless gunman wanders into a small village caught between two warring clans, or gangs if you will, who seek the gold reserves said to be buried there. The red clad and Shakespearean Heike clan, headed by the brash Kiyomori, and the white clad and sophisticated Genjis, headed by the suave and cool Yoshitsune, cross paths with a nameless gunman before he aligns with the town, star crossed lovers, and a legendary gunner to outfox and outgun the clans and bring back order to the village of Utah. This is the story of Sukiyaki Western Django, as directed by Takashi Mike. Aruba, how did you feel about this film? That is an entire discussion I'd like to have because, as somebody who、um, normally does not, act, does not actually rely on subtitles when watching Japanese film, I had to rely on the subtitles quite a bit, and it brought my mind into a giant loop. 
Yeah, we should clarify that. If you haven't heard of this film, this is one of Mike's films that made somewhat of an impact in the West. Uh, Mike is an extremely prolific contract director who allegedly has like over a hundred films under his belt at this point, and not a lot of them make it over here. Uh, this is one of the few that had some cross-cultural appeal and actually got a significant release over here in the West, and that's mostly because it's in English, question mark. The, all the lines are phonetically English. Um, as far as what the if the original script had proper grammar, I do believe it was originally written with proper grammar, I would say. And it does actually have a an all-star Japanese cast like this is a star-studded really sexy cast oh yeah absolutely and it's amazing that this powerhouse cast was on board for this idea at all like they showed up to set and Mike stared at them and said okay <laughs> you don't get to speak Japanese on my set you'll be sounding out your lines of western genre slang you'll try your best to make sense of it and I'll be there to tell you what the lines mean but you'll be in the dark and on how it sounds and if it makes sense for the whole film also, also Tarantino is there, so uh, try not to mess up in front of him, okay? Good job. <laughs> we will get to the star-studded turn of Quentin Tarantino, filmmaker and obsessive, obnoxious f- fan of East Asian cinema, but... <laughs> uh, I mean, granted, there was no foot fetishism in this film, so is it really a Tarantino film? It is not, but he's in there. He's nah, nah, it's totally a Mike film, but but Tarantino's influence is in there absolutely, especially in the spectacle of violence and exaggeration that's used throughout the film. Oh yeah. So, along with the phonetic English and like the need to disguise the nationality of this film, like a borderless, globalized kind of film. Uh, this all kind of stems or is like the apex of a long tradition within Japanese cinema of like cross-cultural exchange, uh, specifically when we talk about the Western genre. Like, uh, like ha- have you seen Yojimbo? Yes, I have seen Yojimbo. Yeah, like uh, Kurosawa's well-known quote-unquote Western film, which essentially has the same plot as this film. Yeah, <laughs> there, was, there was very little distinction, if I'm being honest. Yeah, and that was a product of Kurosawa's pronounced love of American Westerns, like uh, John Ford and Howard Hawks' filmographies. And he borrowed liberally from them and put a nationalized spin on it, where the lone gunman becomes a ronin, and the warring gangs of desperados become samurai clans. And Yojimbo, ironically enough, would go on to inspire the spaghetti western films, like specifically the Man With No Name films of Sergio Leone. And so, uh, uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, yeah, this film is basically um, every other Western film, plus Yojimbo, and then mixed in with the disguise of the battle between the Heike clan and the Genji clan, which had actually happened um, in, I believe, the Taiji period? I could be wrong, but I do have my textbook here, so we can double check those if anybody's going to have a hissy fit over when exactly this took place, so... Uh, it's set years after the Genpei War, so like Heian period, mm-hmm. I think, or late Heian, Heian period. Hey, Heian. Yeah, yeah, Heian. Heian. <laughs> what, whatever. Yeah, I got, I got the, I got the page. I got the page for that. <laughs> yeah, but this film is building off of that rich history of cross-cultural generic exchange and convention sharing, as well as sharing in that want of a lot of films in the 1960s to be like completely 
borderless. Uh, like the Muko Kaseki cyclo film, Spearhead by Nikatsu, which I think we talked about on the last episode. Uh, Nikatsu produced a lot of Western films in this period because they wanted to directly compete with the Western product that was flooding the box office. And the best way to do that was to emulate it to the point where all the cultural markers of Japan are made invisible and it could just be a quote-unquote modern film. Like, I, I forget the exact name of them, but uh, I know Shishido Joe uh, played a couple of gunslinging desperados in these films made by Nikatsu. Yeah, that um, whole stripping of culture comes down basically to the whole gun versus sword kind of dealio here, which actually this film even touches upon uh, quite a bit, or rather um, has it very strategically sprinkled throughout when you take the um, modern uh, the modern and very uh, Americanized gun and see whether it is I guess mightier than the sword you know yeah and when we think about it the influence of the western genre on Japanese cinema beyond Tsukiyaki western Django like Sukiyaki Western Django is so self-aware of it being a Japanese Western that it becomes like a self-parody or postmodern deconstruction at times. But there's so many examples like um, uh, Yojimbo, Man with the Shotgun, Cowboy Bebop is kind of like a space Western when you think about it. Um, Tampopo is like a food Western. Rambling Guitarist <laughs> from, I think, 1959. Uh, there have been Japanese Westerns since like the, the post-war period for decades even. But, like, Tsukiyaki Western Django is the one to really put a spotlight on them, taking American signifiers, like, the Western's MO of conquering the frontier. This this town ain't big enough for the both of us. All of that. All, all these conventions <laughs> and completely stripping them of their American origin and just doing them with, uh, like, Japanese actors, samurai swords occasionally, and Japanese fashion. It's... It's an interesting experiment, and experiment is the right word for it, because a lot of people thought it was a failed yes. or needless endeavor when it originally came out, but... This was a... Yeah, I could see where um, a lot of people would be troubled watching this film, but we'll get into that later. But I think we both agree that it's an experiment that is worthy of the effort, and it's actually quite compelling as a film once you get past the gimmicks, if you <laughs> want to gimmicks, call them that. Yeah. I, I I would maybe rather call them the cultural endurance. I would call it the cultural cultural endurances. That that would actually be the best way I could describe. Um, basically, the attestment to the script, an attestment to the actors, and a, and and an attestment to the plot itself. I don't know why, but I'd like to imagine some intensive John Ford fanboy tried to call this cultural appropriation. <laughs> like, no, the Western is an American <laughs> genre. How dare you, PK? Oh. Guys. Guys, come on. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> There's room in this town for the both of us. <laughs> I, I, I offended everybody. I'm, I, I'm, I'm getting it impaled later. Unlike much like our characters, which do we want to do? We, do we want to dive right into? Um, I guess. Do you want to talk about the characters, or should we talk about like the actual viewing experience? 
that the two of us had. I just want to get the elephant out of the room. Let's talk about Tarantino. Ah! <laughs> okay, let's shit on him. Here we go. <laughs> I think we both agree that Tarantino is a great director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And without him, East Asian cinema would not have the profile it does today without his his mm-hmm. specific champion. He's definitely a very big influence for um, those kind of discovering the um, borders of, of Asian cinema in his films, much like with Kill Bill and... Uh, was it Pulp Fiction? <laughs> Well, well, if it uh, if, if it wasn't for him, our first episode might not have existed because he was the one who really put his weight behind Battle Royale and boosted its profile. And he was the one on the judging board for the Cannes Film Festival the year Old Boy won the Palm d'Or, uh, and he was instrumental in that. And his knowledge Aww. and appreciation for East Asian cinema and all the work that he does to boost its profile cannot be argued with. We aren't shitting on him for that. However, you are not a good actor, sir. Oh, dear Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody has said it. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. From the very first line he utters, um, apparently, according to Chris, his uh, on his official DVD, the subtitles say that in brackets in a Japanese accent. And I'm just like, what? What? Excuse me? Excuse me? Because I just thought, I just thought he was parodying, um, like a South, um, like an American South accent, like a pre, um, Confederate accent, if you will. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's a strange thing to be sure. So, with Tarantino, um, where the <laughs> fuck to be, to begin with this lad? Seriously. Um, basically the man is the, he starts out, no, actually, no, he doesn't start out because he very much ends as the white savior, um, that this film apparently needed, um, and really did not. Yeah. Yeah. In the plot, he plays like a a legendary gunslinger who trains the other legendary gunslinger who goes on to save the climax of the film. But just how, how is it that the only person in the cast who actually speaks the language is the worst actor in the film? Because he's a director first, <laughs> to be fair. But at the same time, like, it was like uh, you ha- you said in our pre-discussion, I mean, the man's having fun. No, he, he absolutely is, and I don't begrudge him that. But him having fun is not the same as me having fun watching him having fun. <laughs> That makes sense. Oh, that's that's a little bit harsh. Poor Terran Terran Chan. Terran Chan. Please don't oh do that. Quentin <laughs> good. <laughs> no, he um like with all due respect, he while he I don't doubt that he probably aided in um a lot of the actors um own uh progress and grasp of the film because a lot of the ways the actors were speaking were quite um, emulative of what Tarantino displayed in uh, those first couple minutes of the film. Yeah, it's a it's a very exaggerated acting style, one that is 
heavy on projection and one that is like stumbling over words in terms of cadence and not getting not really getting the meaning behind the words so they put the emphasis on the wrong places yeah. in the sentence so they are trying and i i don't blame them for that because uh the, the performances are kind of compelling despite mm-hmm. the language barrier you know like the plot is still getting conveyed and the actors have personality despite that but with tarantino like he speaks the language and does this with it. <laughs> y- yes, I-, I know the film is an exploitation film, so being goofy and over the top is a plus, I guess. Yeah, ex- exploitation is definitely the right word when it ca- when it comes to that, per- like especially that particular scene, just because of he's not even fucking trying. Okay, Tarantino's not even trying here. Do you like remember at the end of the film when he's like all? caked up in white old age makeup and he's got like a, a steam powered wheelchair and for whatever reason he like references akira <laughs> i loved that i thought that was hot that was great that was well done <laughs> no, well done Tara- Tara-chan. Tara-chan. that's his name Tara-chan. Ping, ping, ping. <laughs> i think his name in the film is pringo pringo um, but speaking of like the actor process, I did want to actually touch upon the um, what kind of process the uh, Japanese actors had to basically go through when um, like when trying to act this film because this is obviously you can tell there are some actors that um, are fans of uh, English language media and uh, definitely have taken their influence from a lot of. Um, the media consumed in Japan, um, particular standouts being Sato Koichi, who played Kiyomori, and um, uh, Ishibashi Takaki, who played Benke. And because of the way um, they reiterated their lines, you could definitely tell that they um, have consumed English um, to an to an extent that they're definitely more engaged with the language. Whereas there are other um, actors, particularly those who are the sidemen of the clan, who are definitely there for the check, if I if I'm being blunt, but um, it 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 really is a testament to um, what you like what this all star cast can do. Just because uh, what I assume I don't know, and I plan to research this further and maybe hopefully publish these find like what I'm able to find on uh, the Aegonite Twitter, by the way, at Aegonite on Twitter. Um, but what I assume um, was the process for this film, like for the script of this film was they're given a Japanese script first and foremost, and given the meanings behind their lines. Then along with the en- English script, everything is written in, in katakana for them. So katakana is the Japanese lettering, which um, is used for um, foreign words or um, borrowed words in Japanese. So with their katakana scripts, they um, are able to at least get the basic pronunciation of these words down and then are given the meaning behind these words with the Japanese script. And like Chris mentioned before, that probably bring some problems for the actress because certain were certain words that shouldn't be emphasized are emphasized 
Um, and then there, you also have some other actors who, um, like I said, are have probably consumed English English media um, a little more often than the average Japanese viewer, and have probably taken the English script to heart enough that they make the same grammatical mistakes that I've seen a lot of um, my Japanese friends in particular and my Japanese um, students uh, make. For example, the omission of like the word as or the um, omission of does. So it, it really is, it probably took a lot of stamina for <laughs> these actors to really stay in character and also to definitely engage themselves in uh, in the process of um, trying to complete this film. Yeah, when we're talking about it, um, the reason why this film works, despite the hindrance of phonetic script, is because when we were talking about a Western film, like, everyone's roles in a Western film are defined, and we don't need a lot of nuance to those characters. They have clear mm -hmm. representational meanings. So... Ido Hideki in the man with no name role, he doesn't have a lot to grasp with. He's an untethered individual who rolls into town, scouts the area, sees the problem, and signs with, sides with the townspeople for the sake of order. Like, you understand his motivations throughout the film, despite his struggling with the script, because we know the flow of a Western film. We know how they work, we know how they unfold, uh, and it, it just helps overcome this barrier of language the film's working with. And, like, uh, another example, uh, Kiyomori. Uh, he's a cowardly but egotistical leader type, mm -hmm. and Koichi Sato is able to communicate that so well, especially when he lays into his whole manifest destiny mm -hmm. character arc. Like, he starts reading from Shakespeare and yeah. liking himself to Henry the Fourth or Fifth. Um, it was the fifth, it, yeah. It, it works. It, it Call works me Henry. <laughs> one, he's incredibly charismatic in that role. And very nice to look at. True, true. And two, he's playing an over-the-top villain. And on the other side of the spectrum, with uh, Yoshitsune, who is the suave and cool mastermind of the, of the Genji clan, uh, he's completely in control. And as long as he looks and acts cool and keeps it tempered, we kind of just get the role he's playing it like all these roles just work because they're so well defined very true yeah um this is something that i guess having the phonetic english for these japanese actors can really uh, work like it can only be done in a western film it can only be done in this um format just because um like we were mentioning previously the viewing experience um, for me as somebody who doesn't actually pay too much attention to subtitles or um, a lot of times even goes without uh, subtitles and can have Terrace House in the background, whereas Chris needs to catch up on Terrace House <laughs> because he needs to pay attention to the subtitles. Um, but do you remember when I was when I was watching Chris, I had I messaged you, I'm trying to look for a version with Japanese subtitles and am failing. I like I I was wondering like whether I could actually whether I would be more comfortable watching this with Japanese subtitles just because the the fact that the like the English the English subtitles are definitely necessary for um those who are not used to the used to the Japanese accent. 
but when I was looking at the subtitles and hearing, like, I, it was a bit of a mind trip just because when I look at subtitles and I hear the Japanese, uh, like, the ja- the Japanese sentences, I'm like, yeah, like, my mind could connect, like, oh, yeah, that, that means that. But for some reason, when I was looking at the Japanese subtitles and what was coming out of their mouths was not Japanese, but it, but instead something that resembled what I was reading. It was a bit of a mind trip. It was a little bit like, but I was like really glad that I was able to experience something like this just because I never knew how I consumed Japanese media until until this film, basically. I was very taken aback, but also delighted just because it, it brought a level of engagement that, number one, I never knew I could have, but and number two, I never thought I would experience. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's knowingly disorienting. And the first time I saw it, uh, like, I, I didn't have the same experience you did because I'm not a fluent Japanese speaker, so the cognitive disconnect of hearing one language and reading another didn't affect me because I know either language that goodly. <laughs> yeah, Chris can't English very well sometimes. That true, that true. So the first time I saw it, this was around the time I was discovering Mike and starting to understand him as this director who could seemingly do anything while maintaining an imprint of excess on all his films. And with Tsukiyaki Western Django, for example, like he essentially made a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. So that's essentially how I warmed to it. It's a Looney Tunes as cartoon replete with a lot of gunslinging and a lot of violence thrown in for posterity's sake. <laughs> it was actually, uh, so, there was something really interesting you said to me during my viewing. When, when I was saying, when I couldn't find a Japanese subbed version, you said, just think of it as the most accurate English dub ever, <laughs> which really actually did help my English, like my viewing experience. Cause I'm like, Oh, this is, a very like this is actually the most accurate English dub that could ever be released to, like, to an American public. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, you know those YouTube compilation videos of like the worst dubbing in anime history. Uh, like, j- just imagine that, but for the entire film, <laughs> and y- you kind of get the aural experience of Sukiyaki <laughs> Western Django. Uh, visually, visually, however, uh, this is one of Mike's most stylish films I think he's ever made. Oh yeah, it's definitely um, a testament to um, like both to the color palette and also to um, how it really enhances the actual Western genre itself. Um, just before we, I actually want to go into the color palette and the um, visual appeal of the film. I just want to touch before before we. Um, stop the whole language discussion i just want to say the one non-translated japanese line that was in the film which was nanjakoria which basically means um what the hell is this or what the f is this was um when i i really forget which character it was but i believe it was shigemori shigemori who was impaled by a cross a wooden cross and he looks around and everybody else, like, or basically around seeing if anybody's looking at him impaled through the chest with a cross. Like, are you seeing this shit? Like, very comedically. 
And then out of nowhere, we get this random Nanja Korea and then death. And I, I really appreciated that that is where they decided to put the one non-translated Japanese line in the film. The other Japanese line that they had was uh, reiterated by uh, Sarachan. Taranchan, <laughs> our very own Tarantino. However, that was translated immediately after he said it. It was something about life. I have it written somewhere there. Something about life not going the way it's supposed to, or some shit. Some trying to be deep, or trying to be deep shit. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I don't, I don't think it matters at all. But like the one non-translated Japanese line re really opens the film up to self-aware parodic analysis because. Just just putting it blankly, like, why would anyone in this film know that language? Yeah, yeah why would he know that language? In fact, I was actually a little bit curious um, with the character Heihachi just because um, he, I was like, oh my god, did they actually have the kid speak, like, memorize phonetic English? What, what kind of, like, what kind of torture did you put this kid through? And to his benefit and to probably everybody else's benefit, the kid was mute. The only English line uh, Heihachi says is daddy, which is fine, I guess. But yeah, it was, uh, it's a, it's definitely a good um, self-aware, like the film had enough self-awareness in the English, like with the um, language barrier that it added to the overall overarching humor that uh, Mika definitely wanted to provide for the audience. No, no, this is a really over-the-top kind of film style because with, like, the, the handling of the language barrier, no one's going to be taking it seriously anyway, so why not just lean into it? Like, that's why you have the cartoon sound effects dubbed into the gunfights. Like, that, that's why you have these massive blood splatters whenever somebody gets shot and that blood either erupts into rose petals or <laughs> splattered, uh, splatters against the clearly painted backdrops. And... It's it's all very like postmodern in a way because taking all those Western cultural markers out of their context, they don't they no longer have any meaning. So nothing means anything to this film. <laughs> one of sorry, one of my one of my all caps notes here in like in my notes here is he breaks through a window and lands on a horse with many exclamation marks. Yeah, that, that that shot, it, it's so drawn out and slowed down, stylized to all hell. It's a, it's a weirdly done sequence, but it is so effective. It's fantastic. Like, I, don't, I don't understand why so many people, when this came out, found the film to be exhausting and couldn't take it seriously. Like, that's the point. You can't. It's over the top. And even when you get past that, uh, that whole idea, this is one of Mike's best-looking films, period. Oh, wow. That's saying quite a bit, but yeah. I mean, these uh, the shots in particular are beautiful to look at. And like I said previously, I'm somebody who's very squeamish with blood and with um, violence in general. And I definitely am somebody who needs it to be toned down in order to be, in order to, um, I guess, digest. <laughs> um digest uh what i'm viewing by the way chris i still don't forgive you for i saw the devil but anyway <laughs> um uh the shots themselves are uh like they look like pop art to me it, they're so colorful and so bold and 
it's ironic to say just because when you think of a western you think of those muted se uh, sepia colors and those um like i like i actually think about some like like it feels reminiscent of film noir where um you know the color pal like the color palette is quite muted and well for noirs they're obviously black and white but it they're like it's it's kind of interesting that um Mika brought out this color palette of the reds and the whites and a lot of um flashbacks were green and a lot of the sets were like were elaborate and ha held a lot of primary colors for us to look at and it was just and the blood them like the blood itself the blood like I, I just want to say a note about the blood itself and the blood was like brighter than the caramy like for those of you who don't know what caramine is it's that coloring agent from blood from the blood of um bugs that uh makes a drink ruby red it was basically looking at like oh it's that's caramine isn't it whatever um but looking at that like bright red blood and knowing that it was a part of um i guess mika's plan for um us to view it's it i just the color the colors were beautiful to look at if you're exhausted by the dialogue at least look at the the colors of it no no uh, like i said it's incredibly stylized and it is so necessary to have those sporadic bursts of color and exaggeration because otherwise um uh, like this is a really familiar plot like we said it's the same basically as yojimbo to an extent two warring clans take over a town and a nameless samurai slash gunslinger waltzes in and upholds law and reinserts order so with these stylistic flourishes usually organized around gore and violence it breaks that monotony although even here the excessive gun violence is usually done so tongue-in-cheek and for laughs that it's it's hard to take it at a visceral level yeah especially just like um especially with the um humor that we mentioned before just because of the over it was basically a lot the over the topness uh, that uh bring forward you know the um violence but make it make it hilarious kind of a deal and um although there were times where um it got a little bit difficult to watch um, i'm not going to particularly mention uh the particular scenes just because we're not going to focus on them today but um there are uh there are certain shots that kind of override that that um really tone it down for somebody like me um i also did appreciate that one um manga transition it was like a shaded um like sh I, I think it was um momoi uh, kaori's character who um plays ruriko and she turns into a like her character somehow turns into a long-haired goddess that uh turns into i don't know it's like what it, it's like it was like watching um a stylized logo come to life for like a split second and then disappear yeah the the words you were looking for there were cell shaded that's like the emulated kind of style there uh just as well that was like a flashback explaining the origins of the quote bloody ben 10 the most legendary gunslinger in the small town history of utah spelled y-u-t-a and I not u-t-a-h <laughs> i love that so much 
Yeah, and just just going off that, the gun violence, the the way these scenes are choreographed is very frenetic, very energized. And for Mike to have these kind of action scenes in his films is so strange because for him and action, it is normally really gritty and grounded up until the excessive violence starts taking over. And this is why this is one of the most ambitious films in terms of scope and premise and everything like that. And also because it's just so unlike the rest of his filmography, even among like the projects that are canonized as full-blooded Mikkei films, because just, it's it's weird. This, this movie's just plain weird. <laughs> yeah, it's weird is definitely the right, um, right word, because that's all we could really say <laughs> about it, just because of how, I guess watching it, it like like we said, watching it is quite a trip for anybody. But uh, imagine watching this on acid, bro. That would be that would be more of an experience. We're not condoning uh, using acid, by the way, but just saying. Um, oh, uh, r- real quick, uh, we were, we were talking about the exaggerated violence and how it isn't really visceral because it's so silly and fun and unrealistic. Um, I'm thinking of the one scene where Yoshitsune like catches a sword above his head yes i i, I have that scene and and asks one of his supporters to do the same thing and he misses completely the sword gets embedded <laughs> in his head and he still feebly tries to catch it and that gets drawn out before yoshitsune just shoots him down yep <laughs> yep that scene in particular is uh see that's where i was like that would be normally a scene for me that would get me rather squeamish and uh, like but the thing is there's no blood like it's not there isn't the um dramatic or the um i guess added for humor blood gushing out of his head um viewable to us no the the sword stays wedged stays wedged in there with his confusion and you don't hear his like they, we don't hear screams of pain from any of the uh, actors either. This is definitely more of a, um, look, it's like a video game, you know? It's like, you shoot, you dead. And that's how we're going to portray it. Yeah, that's, that's why I call it cartoony. And <laughs> that, that that scene is like the second hardest I laughed in the whole film. Like, the hardest I laugh is right at the end when Bloody Benton is all out of bullets. She shot all the shit, uh, about to die. And she just feebly throws her gun at the sheriff who is firing at her. <laughs> no, that, that scene in particular, I think... Um... If I'm if I'm remembering correctly, that that went right over my head. I I do remember I was like, ah oh, shit, no, she lost, and I was very annoyed. But no, that was funny though. Well, that's because that's just how these films go, either in the Mike context or in the Western context. Uh, when we bring back a much talked about legend of gunslinging, who is like who's the best who ever do it in their time, as soon as they make a make an appearance, of course they are. They're just going to die. <laughs> oh no! That's just how it goes, and that that's that's fine. That's how it works. Um, let's let's talk about what happens to Heihachi after the film ends, because this is just insane. Heihachi? Heihachi? Oh, you mean my nephew Heihachi? <laughs> Sorry, he like Heihachi bears a very strong resemblance to my nephew, so I had a very special place in my heart for him. Anyways, go on, Chris. 
After the film ends, Heiachi gets the rumored gold that was like hidden in the area that the whole film was about, and we are told in a block of text that after he grows up in this film, he moves to Italy and changes his name to Django. <laughs> yeah. So the, so the the famous Sergio Corbucci Italian spaghetti western film. Uh, you've been wrong about it this entire time. It does not star Franco Nero. It stars a Japanese boy, according to this film. And it's just this continuation of this cross-cultural exchange. Like, oh yeah, Sukiyaki Western Django happened, and that inspired the spaghetti western films. Why not? Yep. Fuck you. <laughs> and that's where we all got Sukiyaki. And like with a title like this, it's all kind of self-explanatory. Sukiyaki being uh, the um, famous noodle dish from uh, the Kanto region of Japan. So um, that's basically Japanese noodles, spaghetti, Western. (laughs) Oh my god, so so brilliant. (laughs) And sukiyaki is just like all this stuff mixed together. It's it's essentially a Japanese hot pot, so... Mix of elements, westerns, Django references, samurai movies, fuck it. As you like it. (laughs) Yeah, like, uh, this feels like a first draft kind of title. True, yes, actually. This is what the film's about. We'll call it something different, like, I don't know, like the War of the Clans or something. And when it came time, they were just all just, leave it, it it, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I'd love to know the, I would love to know the writing process between um Mika and whoever he collaborated with for this uh Nakamura Masaru Masaru, oh uh do you want to know something really fucked up let's hear it so when I was looking into the crew of this film I really wanted to know who shot this film obviously and it was Kurita Toyomichi uh not a well-known cinematographer in Japan he mostly works in the in the U.S. uh want to know what is just super weird about that what is? Uh, he's got a working relationship with Mike, but while this was ongoing, he was shooting, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four of Tyler Perry's movies. <laughs> oh, that's rich. That's rich. Please tell me they're, they're like, please tell me that, uh, the Tyler Perry movie day of stuff. Please. please. Uh, in 2006, he shot Mike's imprint, and the same year he shot Medea's Family Reunion. Oh, hell yes. Back, yeah, oh, God. Okay. I'm done quitting. I, I got night. This was the topped episode. We're done. Yeah. Uh, in 2007, he shot Sukiyaki Western Django and two Tyler Perry movies Daddy's Girl and Why Did I Get Married? And he has three more Perry movies under his belt. Oh, fuck yes. Okay. <laughs> in 2008, it was The Family That Prays. In 2010, it was Why Did I Get Married 2. And in 2011, it was Medea's Big Happy Family. This is... Like, I, do you know how much you've made by life? This is like you telling me that... Um, this is This is the highlight of everything that has gone wrong today. And I, I just feel... I feel rejuvenated. I feel very grateful for life. Um, I can die now. Bye, Chris. (laughs) 
What's what's weird? What's weird was he also shot second unit unit photography on Paul Schrader's Mishima film, and he also um uh, this is this is just blowing my mind now. Uh, he also shot Oshima's Taboo in nineteen ninety nine. Yo, okay, now I'm looking at his page like you are. Yo, damn, and like, but the thing is, he's quite. That 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 actually speaks to the kind of range he has, though, just because of the, like, oh my god, just like, I'm sorry, I I I have two sisters who love day a movie watch. I am not sorry, but like when you think about the <laughs> contrast between uh, the way um, this film and something like Medea Medea's Family Reunion, uh. Is like that. That actually speaks quite a bit to um, what this man could do. So uh, props to him. And like I said, Sukiyaki Western Jago is a really good-looking film. It's yeah, it's beautiful. Scenes are incredibly sleek. The colors just pop, and the way they capture the mood and tonal shifts in the film from these like really silly cartoonish moments to these really self-serious Western film moments, like it works well, and it has a lot to do with the cinematography and. Tyler Perry, you have no idea how lucky you were to work with this man. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you were, he were, um, I really hope Tyler Perry paid him well. That's what I'm gonna say. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm sure he was paid his rate. <laughs> but on that note, um, the like, can we talk about uh, how amazing the cast is? Well, I mean, we've been doing it the entire entire podcast yeah, i guess but i i particularly want to talk about how freaking hot momoi kaori is who plays duriko um heihachi's grandmother and uh she was basically she plays the character that uh is the that was that was trained by tarantino's character to be the savior of the film but ultimately spoiler alert fails um but the fact of the matter is, Momoi Kaori was born in 1951, making her 56 during the time the film was released, making her in her 50s. I don't like. I, I don't know why you're so shocked by that. Like, no, I'm not shocked. I am like rather I'm like woman, woman, woman be strong, woman be hot, and woman be looking great at 50, and makes me want to cry because I look like that. And when I'm 50, I'll probably still look like I'm two. No, no, totally. It, it helps that you have this really glossy <laughs> cast who are dressed to the nines in these ridiculous red and white outfits. And it, it, it does a lot for the whole, like, feel of the film as, you know, elevated nonsense. Yeah, this this is actually quite a bit of an all-star cast, like I said before. Um, so we have A-list stars like uh, Sato Kuchi, uh, Ito Hideaki, um, Oguri Shun, Takai Masato and uh, Himura Yoshino. So they're quite um, prominent in uh, the Japanese star system there. Also, uh, Momoi Kaori as well. Um, and then you have um, people like Ishibashi Takaki, who's a comedian. There's definitely a lot of comedians cast in this film, which is quite necessary, actually. This is where uh, the whole, um, I guess, nuance of the film comes together just because of these comedian comedians. And Ishibashi Takaki, like I mentioned before, um, was somebody who I knew actually uh, prior definitely has consumed more English media just because uh, he used to be the host of um, a variety show 
called Utaban, in which uh, he would bully the members of Morning Musmin. He was quite iconic for um, his comedy through uh, it on Utaban and in the uh, in the uh, in his uh, duo, which I believe is called Tunnels. Yeah, so he um, so people like him. So it's a mix between like A-listers and comedians on the side, which all together definitely it's the entire essence of the film do we have anything more to say (laughs) i mean i'm pretty spent i thought okay well i was saying i thought we would be talking for hours about this film well like you know uh, for strange and as weird as we claim it to be it's uh it's also really self-explanatory it it really is just but i yeah it's something that i i definitely recommend any of you just because of especially those who are proficient or learning Japanese just because of what I was able to experience with these subtitles and it really actually makes you question how you consume Japanese media on a regular basis which it definitely shifted for me like I'm now a little bit more aware and it's a little bit frightening but I'm glad for it Yeah, it's a really campy transnational experiment, and there are a few films like it. So that's why it's so worthy to be sought out, because it just stands out, even among the varied and impossible-to-pin-down filmography of Mike. It's just a strange little Western film that works, despite all of the barriers that are built into its premise. So in other words... Watch for Mika, not for Tarantino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I assume Tarantino drummed up a lot of interest and got a lot of Western audience to seek it out, but man, like, <laughs> he's just the worst part of the movie. It really is. Oh, Tarantino. So I guess that's going to do it for this episode. Um, but we do have our next film figured out. We just aren't sure it's going to come out. But Chris, do you want to an- announce our next film? Um, if I have the schedule right, we are going to Ozu Town with brothers and sisters of the Toda family. Yes, which I'm actually very personally excited to view because I haven't been able to find a copy. But thanks to the very, very beautiful Criterion channel, we're going to be able to uh, review that for you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be our first Ozu film, so there's a milestone there. Uh, it'll be a classic again, which will... Be a huge jump from Sukiyaki Western Django, but these things don't matter. So <laughs> keep an eye out for whenever that episode drops. Um, follow us on all the social medias at Egg and Night Podcast, um, at Cinema Creep. Aruba Sultana. At Aruba Sultana, and stay safe and stay inside. Oh,